Well, I was uh, driving to work the other day, just a couple days ago, and I saw it again. I saw that bumper sticker that is on so many vehicles, and maybe you have seen it too. It's this bumper sticker. Coexist. You seen that one? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a cool thought. Let's just all coexist. I mean, why do we have to sort of be at odds with one another, right? Um, I don't know if you realize what all these symbols mean. Of course, you know what the last one means, but let me just walk through them. The C is the symbol for Islam, the Muslim religion. And then, uh, of course, the O there is the peace sign. Uh, nuclear disarmament, actually, back in... Uh, the 50s is when that was actually uh, created, but it's a peace sign that just we'd have global peace. And then, of course, the male and female symbol, and in our day and age, uh, you may have to add more symbols to that, but uh, back in the 50s, it was, you know, men and women, we could just kind of coexist, can't we? The X is the Star of David, it's a symbol for Judaism. The I is the symbol for the Wiccan witchcraft. The S is the yin and the yang, uh, that's uh, Eastern religion. That would be um, Taoism and Taoism, I believe, as I was uh, looking into this and just reminding myself about it. And of course, we have the symbol for Christianity for the T there. And uh, you know, can't we just all get along? I mean, it's okay if, uh, if you have a conviction, if you have something that, that you believe in, if there's something that kind of helps you along in life, that's all well and good. That's fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's, feel free to practice it. Just don't impose your religion on someone else. Can't we just all coexist? Well, that would be well and good if practicing or adhering to a religion or to a worldview was the end game. That we could just, you know, pick our worldview, pick the thing that we want to adhere to in order to connect with whatever our definition of a God or a higher power is all about. Or, or that we can just all sort of figure out what works for us as it relates to, you know, uh, walking in some level of conviction. Or to make us reach some sort of higher state of being, some sort of nirvana, that we can just all choose that, or to feel better on the inside, whatever the case may be, if that's the end game, then yeah, let's just all coexist. But what if that was off the mark with what the end game is? What if I were to say life is first and foremost about knowing God, having an actual relationship with the one and only true God. Now, in this setting, of course, most of us would say, yeah, that's it, you got it. You hit the nail on the head there, good job. But can we articulate what a real relationship with God is all about? Can, can we articulate what it means to know the Lord? And what truly goes into having an experiential, an, an actual uh, not a relationship with him, a relationship that is real. Well, today we start a new series, five-week series leading up to Christmas, actually, entitled Foretold. We are going to spend five weeks in Luke chapter 1. Now, you might think, wow, five weeks in one chapter, that sounds uh, like you're really going to be digging in, and we are. 
But you need to realize that Luke chapter 1, I believe, has 83 verses in it. So uh, it's a pretty big chapter, but we're going to take five weeks to unpack it. To lead up to when God broke into world history and became man. It will lead up to Luke chapter 2, which is, of course, the understanding, the historical account of Jesus' birth. God came to this world for a purpose, and that is so that we could know him, so that we could have a real relationship with him. He came to this earth to mend this relationship with him. This is why the Gospel of Luke was written. And so if you have your Bibles handy, you can go to Luke chapter 1 with me. If not, I will have the scriptures up here on the uh, slide, but uh, let me just start with Luke chapter 1 in verse 1. Luke writes this. Luke the physician, by the way, a doctor, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting to me as well, having invested everything, investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things which you have been taught. Theophilus. We don't know much about this guy other than what this sentence actually says about him. So really all we have is that he's quite an honorable guy. He is the most excellent Theophilus. His, his name means friend of God, which I think is important. It seems like he was in a state of confusion as to what he's been hearing about this guy called Jesus who had walked this earth. Uh, no doubt Theophilus had some Jewish friends who were uh, kind of frustrated, uh, were telling him that th this whole new thing called Christianity, it kind of goes against their religion, it goes against their heritage. But Theophilus was curious, because he saw in these followers of Jesus something different. He saw in these followers of Jesus, there, there was something about them that he wanted to know more about. He had been taught about it, as it says here. He had heard about it, but Luke says, let me make sure that, that we're really clear about what we're talking about, about who this Jesus is and what it means to know him. Christians throughout history have had a relationship with God. And many, most Christians, uh, that relationship is something different that the world if they're looking, seems to take notice of. It's something different about them. And Luke sets out to tell Theophilus and all people throughout the centuries, because we have the gospel here, that they can actually have a relationship with the living God as well. I was tempted even in writing this as I was remembering some of church history and how those who had an intimate relationship with God really uh, have changed people's perspective. Um, well, let me just name two. It's not even in my notes, but I just have to now that I live. Like Luther, Martin Luther, um, you know, he was devoted to his religion, Catholicism, before Protestantism. But I believe it was Zinzendorf who actually had this intimacy with God that really made a difference on Luther's life. 
or take John Wesley. John Wesley understood the methods of how to, you know, live out this Christianity. But then he ran into the Moravians who just had this intimacy with God that changed John Wesley's life. Well, I could name others, but we must. I'm on a time crunch here. Um, uh, Luke writes that in order to know God, there, there is some things that we need to understand. To have this kind of a, a relationship with God, he, he starts by saying, I'm going to lay out for you, Theophilus, this truth. Notice again what he writes in verse 4. He says, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And so here's our first point. To know God, we use the filter of truth. I mean, a lot of people can have a lot of opinions as to what, you know, knowing God is all about. But can we line up with that which is the exact truth? Luke says, so that you might know that those things that you were taught are certainly true. It's not just opinions. So how can we figure out what's actually true? Well, we, of course, can use logic or reason. We can observe with our five senses. We can test if things are actually true, that they would not be self-contradictory. And that which is true is actual reality and not some sort of myth. What is absolutely true? It's absolute. Something that is absolute never changes. It withstands a sincere challenge no matter what those challenges are. It's true no matter what people think or what people feel or what people believe. They may not believe it, but that doesn't make it not true. Absolute truth cannot contradict itself. So this whole idea of coexisting cannot be true because if you line all those up, they contradict one another. Well, not to bore us with philosophical arguments about that which is true, let me just get to my point. If we are going to know God, we must know him in alignment with that exact truth, as Luke wrote, the absolute truth. We must know him in alignment with whatever is logical and rational. We must know him in a non-contradictory way, in line with that which is actually actual. Okay, anyway, that's a little deep. The Bible, the Bible is the absolute truth. And Luke was saying here, he was saying, Theophilus, I'm going to put down here these words so that you can know God, not just however you want to, not just in a coexisting way, whatever path you want to take, but that you would know him in alignment with the exact truth. So to know God, we must use the filter of truth. Secondly, to know God, he must initiate it. If we're going to know God, God has to lean in and, and, and allow us to know him and draw us to himself. So for the rest of this passage that we're looking at this morning, the main character is this guy named Zacharias. Zacharias becomes the father of John the Baptist. I find it interesting in the Gospel of Luke that Luke is going to lay out 
all the things about the very way in which God will mend this relationship with him through our Savior Jesus. And he starts out with somewhat of an obscure character in the Bible. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. Now, if I were, you know, inspiring Luke to write this, which is impossible for me to do, but if I were, I'd probably start out with Mary. Or I'd start out with Joseph. But through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke starts out with Zacharias. And he does this foretelling of truth through Zacharias on how to know God. Look at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, by the way, this is good to mark our dates, so that king, uh, great Herod the Great, king of Judea, here was uh, the king of the Judean area uh, from 37 to 4 B.C. So in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So both both Zacharias and Elizabeth were descendants of Aaron, descendants of Levi. They were both, both of the priestly line. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. If knowing God was all about practicing religion or practicing rituals, adhering to them, then Zacharias and Elizabeth would have had it down. They were blameless. They were righteous. On the surface, they had it all together. And no doubt, in their hearts, they were sincere about their commitment to keeping the commandments and the law of God. But we'll see that Zacharias lacked one thing, a key thing. Before we do, we've got to cover some ground. So here is some information that we need to know in verse 7. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now, this is critical for the account here, because uh, it is through this challenge that God initiates a relationship with Zacharias. Zacharias and his wife, no doubt, felt loss, a sense of loss. They had been, for years, wanting to have children and uh, to no avail. No doubt they felt like outsiders in a community that highly valued having children. And so no doubt their family and friends, there was this feeling like, um, okay, we're outsiders looking in. I, I would imagine that Zacharias uh, was questioning a little bit about God's goodness in his life. I, I would imagine that he was wondering if God actually listens to prayers because he had been praying for a child and, and there was nothing happening. He kept doing his godly duty, and yet he didn't seem to be being blessed for it. And I imagine that, that Zacharias felt like God was a bit distant, like God doesn't really listen. Maybe he thought God wasn't being very good to his wife, Elizabeth, and he. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like God is a bit distant? You ever feel like, man, I've been praying for a long time. Why doesn't God answer my prayers? You ever wonder if God is actually good? I mean, I know the Bible says it, but maybe you don't feel it. You feel like God is near or distant? Does God really care? 
Well, after years of service as a priest in the temple, God initiated a relationship with Zacharias. Look at verse 8. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God and the anointed order of his division according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. So this is a big deal for Zacharias. He was chosen by casting lots that he'd be the next guy to burn incense in the temple. Now let me show you. I've got a diagram of the temple here. So just to give you an idea, uh, priests are all over the place. Levitical, uh, descendants of Levi, they're all over the place. I mean like thousands of them. All in these areas, praying with people, working with people out here. In here, they're, they're making sacrifices. They're doing all sorts of stuff that they're supposed to be doing. And uh, to burn incense at the altar of incense was a rare deal. I mean, many of these priests would go through all their years of serving the Lord in the temple and never burn incense in the temple. And if you burned incense in the temple, it was like a once-in-a-lifetime deal. So Zacharias is now picked to burn incense in, at the altar of incense. Now let me show you where the altar of incense is. If we zoom in, keep your eye here on number four. You see this right here? This little light blue thing is the veil. When Jesus died on the cross, his veil was torn from top to bottom. It separates the holy place on this side and the Holy of Holies on this side. This is where the Ark of the Covenant would have been. And so the altar of incense is like right up against the veil. We are like so close to the Holy of Holies. And Zacharias goes in and he burns incense there. And while he's in there, this incense is a prayer incense. The smoke going up is to represent the prayers of the people going up to God and everybody is standing outside, way, way outside, way over here in the temple. They are standing out there. There's a crowd there and they're praying at the hour of incense. In what seems like a random choice, just casting lots, by a random priest named Zechariah. He was nobody different than all the other priests there. And... Uh, to perform a routine ancient ritual that goes way, way back, which was actually a moment orchestrated by God. God broke in to bring a message to Zacharias, a message of such good news. Look at verse, seven, uh, verse 11. It says this, And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. Now before we move on, give him the name John. John means one whom God has graciously given. Actually, more specifically, John means God is gracious. You will give him the name John because John means God is gracious and you will see the gracious hand of God in your life, Zacharias. You'll see God's gracious hand in verse 14 through having joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. 
For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Isn't that true? When you heard John the Baptist, when he comes on the scene, what is he saying? Repent! Turn back to the Lord. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He will do just this. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, before the Lord Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah was a prophet. So here we have John, who is a descendant of the priests. He'll be a priest, and he'll be a prophet. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Your wife is going to give birth. She's going to give birth to the last prophet before the Messiah comes. This is good news. God loves you, Zacharias. He loves you and, and he has this future for you that you could never even imagine. A future beyond your holy service to him in, in, in what you've been doing so faithfully over all these years. You're going to be the father of John the Baptist. That's a big deal. Now before I say these next words, I'm a little reluctant to say them. Because if they come out of my mouth, I have to own them first before I say them to you. God has a future for you and a future for me that goes way beyond our faithful service to him. This that we do on a regular basis, this having Sunday morning worship services, doing ministry together in a pretty routine way. This is all right and good and sacred, quite candidly. But God wants to do a work in and through you and in and through me that is unexplainable apart from him. He wants to do something far beyond what we could ever do ourselves. He wants to do great things through us. Where we would find ourselves saying, I know God. Because he's so real in how he operates. He, he's doing amazing things. And he's allowing me to be a part of it. Some of you, maybe all of you know D.L. Moody. Here's a photograph of D.L. Moody. He died in 1899. D.L. Moody, he, uh, he was a great man of God. Didn't live to be very old, but in his lifetime, he uh, served God with all of his heart. You, he was the founder of Moody Church in Chicago and, of course, Moody Bible Institute. There are other uh, institutions out east that he also was a part of starting Nevertheless, D.L. Moody, a great man of God, one of his most famous quotes that is attributed to D.L. Moody is this, and I have it up here on the screen. Is he, he said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. The world has yet to see what God can do through a man or through a woman whose heart is completely devoted to him, whose heart is completely set apart for God's holy purposes. 
Now that's the quote that we hear that maybe you've heard. But what is not quoted is the very next sentence that Moody said. I don't know if you realize, but he followed it up with this sentence. He said, by God's help, I aim to be that man. By God's help, by God's initiation, by God's work, by God working through me. Not my own strength, not my own personality, but that God would be the one that would do an amazing thing beyond just the routines of following after him and doing ministry, but that he would do amazing things through you and through me. Things that we would have to say. This is unexplainable apart from him. God initiates it, and he's initiating it in us right now. But there's another important ingredient in order to know God. The third thing is to know God, we must believe Him. We must walk by faith. We must trust Him. This is what Zacharias lacked. He was a blameless man, a righteous man, but he lacked faith. Look at verse 18. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know for certain? I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. By the way, before I go on, it's not too late. Mike's birthday today, 78 years old. 78, it's not too late. God still is going to do an amazing work through you. It's not too late. You're not too advanced in years. He still wants to do amazing things through you, just like he wanted to do through Zacharias. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. Yeah. See, Zacharias, he was fearful. He lived a fearful life, I would imagine. And that fearfulness uh, didn't help him see straight. Remember, Zacharias, here you are burning incense at the altar of incense. Remember, Zacharias, this is an angel talking to you. Not just any old angel. This is Gabriel, like the top angel in God's army. Zacharias says, oh, how can I be certain? He lacked faith. He was governed by fear and not faith. How about you and me? What governs us? Zacharias maybe thought, what if we never have kids? What governs you and me? Well, what if, what if I make a mistake? What if things don't turn out the way that I, I, I hope they turn out? What if I'm alone the rest of my life? What if I fail? What if I'm not qualified enough to do this? What if I let people down? What if I let God down? Fear. Fear. We're to trust in God. Trust in his truth. The girl sacrifices faith. Look at what God does. Verse 20. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place. Because you did not believe my words. You didn't have faith. Which will be fulfilled in their proper time. 
The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. I don't know if you have ever heard of the name uh, Bill Hull. Bill Hull, uh, I've got a photograph of Bill there. Uh, he would be known as probably the guru when it comes to disciple making. He has written prolifically about how to make disciples. I mean, he's like the leader among leaders when it comes to disciple making. He, he, um, he wrote uh, the disciple making church and the disciple making pastor and and uh, Jesus Christ, disciple maker, and book after book after book on disciple making, disciple making, disciple making. I was, I was at a conference um, not too long ago, and uh, I was in a group of pastors that uh, are in a similar church as, as we are, senior pastors of multiple staff churches, and uh, we were talking about best practices on making disciples. And... Uh, Bill Hall's name came up, actually a pastor at, in Madison, Blackhawk Church, Chris Dolson. He, he said that he was in a, a room with other pastors talking to Bill Hall, and uh, they asked Bill the question, um, so what is the best tool? What is the best book or way in which we can help people to become devoted followers of Jesus? What's the very best tool out there? And Bill Hall leaned back, paused, took kind of a cleansing breath, leaned forward, and said, pain. Pain is the best tool to grow Going through hardships, difficult times, that seems to be the most impactful way to grow people in their faith. Seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? Wait, pain? So opposite of what we might think. But that's exactly what God did with Zacharias. You don't have much faith, Zacharias, so I'm going to take your voice away. Imagine being mute for nine months. Imagine not being able to speak for nine months not having any pre-understanding of sign language or any way really to communicate. Imagine all of a sudden you can't talk. Imagine the stress. Imagine how this would alter your life. Imagine how difficult it must have been for Zacharias. That's exactly where God needed him to be because it's through trials that God grows our faith. This is seen over and over and over again in the New Testament even in the Old Testament for that matter. But one of my favorite passages that speaks to this quite clearly is James chapter 1, verse 2. James chapter 1, verse 2 says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, 
Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result. So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That your faith might grow, become more complete. Pain. Going through hard times, that's how God grows us in our faith. I don't know what trial you're facing. Each and every one of our trials is unique to each and every one of us. But what I know is what is common for all of us. God wants to use our trials to strengthen you and me in our faith. He wants this trial that you're facing to help you or to help me see him actively working in our lives. He wants us to see our weaknesses so that he can reveal his power or his strength in our lives. Like the Apostle Paul wrote when he was struggling. He wrote this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He says, and he, the Lord Jesus, has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul says, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So that I might see Jesus actively working in my life. So that I might actually see that he, he is the strength of my life, not me. That he, that he is the one who, who is who is working in me, not, not all of what I bring to the table, but what he has done in me and through me. My life is sincerely what it is because of what Jesus has done, not because of what I've done. That Jesus gets the credit, Jesus gets the glory, because my life is truly unexplainable apart from him. Can we say that about Jesus? Yeah. Amen is right. Which leads me to my final point. To know God, we will know His grace. When we get to know God, we get to see His grace in such tangible ways. Back in Luke chapter 1 and verse 23, look at what it says. It says, when the days of His priestly service were ended, He went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, and by the way, when she says this, I just picture the most tender voice, so loving toward the Lord, so thankful to him. She says this in verse 25, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me, take away my disgrace among men. Back then, if you were barren, People would look down their noses at you. She felt shame from the people around her. But the Lord touched her life and brought to her a blessing. And to her husband Zacharias as well. To know God is to know just how infinitely good he is to you and to me, even though we don't deserve it. Know how wonderful he is toward us. And it's not about practicing a certain religion of choice. It's about knowing God. It's not about a smorgasbord of different religious choices. 
It's about knowing the exact and only truth. It's not about how we try to make ourselves acceptable to him. It's about seeing him initiate our a relationship with us and how he wants to actively work in our lives and then seeing him actually working in our lives through the eyes of faith, that we trust him. And when we see him and when we know him, we'll have that same kind of peace, I think. I know that Elizabeth and Zacharias were feeling. We'll have that same kind of warmth in having this peace that passes understanding down in our souls. And we'll experience that same kind of love that truly is unexplainable apart from the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you don't call us to rituals and religion call us to a relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, that, that you're not some distant God, but you're a personal God. Thank you, Lord, that you loved us enough to break into history, become a man, and being obedient, Lord Jesus, as a man, you're obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. But you died to pay for our sin. You died to take our curse upon yourself so that we might have a relationship that's mended with our Heavenly Father. I pray for us, Lord, that we would, we would walk close to you would know you in an intimate way. We would know just how, how real you are. For some here, no doubt, they, they maybe feel like you're distant. Lord, reveal to them in a tangible way how you're still at work, you're still doing great things, and you want to continue to do that. Lord, think about wanting to do great things in and through us. Pray for us that we would not walk by fear, but by faith. Strengthen our faith, Lord, by your spirit in us. And we thank you that we get to be about what you're about in this world. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your precious name. Well, I want to remind you again, as I'm wearing this wonderful t-shirt, as God shows tender mercy toward us, let's show tender mercy to the children of Panama. Support one of those kids. I know my daughters and I are going to pick out a child. And Jill gets back today, but she said, feel free to pick a child out, uh, and we'll, we'll support a, a child, and I hope that you do too.